Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Canada is home to structural racism. As much as some might wish to exempt our provinces, cities, political parties, laws, policies, and institutions from such exploitation and discrimination, the practices are routine. They are embedded in the fabric of our social, political, and economic lives. To better understand how these systems work, we need to look at the very processes by which we are governed and ask, how does structural racism shape our politics? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Balarama Holness, Quebec politician, recent Montreal mayoral candidate, and former CFL safety. Let's start with your political career. So in 2017, you ran for the mayoralty of the Montreal North Borough with uh, Projet Montréal. You later accused uh, the party of structural discrimination, uh, saying that they were running visible minority candidates in ridings they couldn't win. How did racialized candidates fit within the party slate in, in 2017? Well, I think that's just very much so surface level. Um, the certainly tokenization and instrumentalization of minority candidates happens throughout all levels of government mm -hmm. um, in which candidates who have very little chance of winning and represent diversity are put in boroughs that are virtually impossible to win. But I think uh, well beyond that is uh, the party's focus during the election and after the election. So during the election, there'll be a strong focus on remedying inequality, issues of urban planning, employment discrimination, things to get uh, the vote out, if you will. I mean, once elected, everything shifts and then goes back to status quo and um, homogenous makeup of whether it's City Hall or their executive committee. So I think it's more so the uh, double talk of what happens during uh, an election period and then after. I think that was the main issue that people were concerned about. And is it, I mean, is this a subtle sort of, of process by which they say, uh, you know, we really want you on the team um, and then good luck, <laughs> you know, sort of walk away? Yeah, or is yeah. it, is there, I mean, is there some support? Because I know this is a problem with, with, I mean, federally with women too, you know, when, when women are presented to Canadians on the ballot, they'd vote for them like they'd vote for anyone else. But parties put women in unwinnable ridings, you know, and, and then sort of abandon them by saying, well, you know, we're not going to win, so we're not going to put resources into the campaign. Yeah. Well, my, my situation is, is somewhat different and a little bit more complex because I chose personally to run for mayor of Montreal North. And for people who don't know, it's one of the poorest boroughs in all of Canada, um, high uh, proportion of immigrants, um, one of the highest high school dropout rates in throughout Canada, including Quebec. And Quebec has the highest high school dropout rate in the whole nation. Uh, obviously, issues of poverty, the epicenter of COVID-19, we, we learned that, you know, later on. So, but I chose to run there because that's where inequity lies. So that's mm -hmm. where I went. Uh, so for me, it was, it was a personal choice to run there. And the, once again, it is the reaction uh, post-election in the way that political parties then treat people who care about these issues. And for me, it was clear that many political parties, including Pajam Montréal, they don't truly care about issues that I cared about, which was social justice, environment, et cetera. They're doing it for political gain and for political purpose. And I think that's where uh, the tension arose. And that's really, um, 
for me a, an old story, a past story, but that is like the, the crux of the issue. Right. And so there wasn't a lot of then, you know, sort of movement building within these spaces, capacity building between elections. This was just a matter of sort of do, doing some window dressing during the election and then sort of abandoning the community in that sense. Exactly. And political parties, you know, throughout, uh, you know, throughout the world in, in healthy democracies are excellent um, marketers. I, I mm-hmm. view <laughs> many political parties as simply marketing machines. And, you know, if we look at, for example, even at the provincial level, everyone can agree that quality investment and in public education is important. And lo and behold, the public schools Every election cycle, despite the promises, are always crumbling. And so there's this kind of double talk where there is a sense with every election that there's hope for change and it's marketed as such. But once elected, things, um, you know, things go back to status quo. And and that's why many people found out after the election that I wasn't uh, your typical politician. I kept working. I founded a nonprofit organization. And I'm sure we'll get into it. And I forced a public consultation on systemic racism. Then I went on to create a new party. So um, I'm somewhat disenchanted, like many Canadians, with the state of our politics. And I'm doing my best in order to press the right buttons to advance real and what I call real change. I want to get into that now. You ran for mayor of Montreal in the recent election under the Mouvement Montréal uh, banner, your party. And I'm curious what your party's priorities are and what uh, it w- were in, in, in the current election and what you were doing differently in, in recruiting yeah. and running racialized candidates, but also in being present in the, in, in the community. And as a corollary to that, I'll come back to this, is you know, I want to know if you've, if you've noticed other parties changing how they do things. But for, first, I want to focus on yours. What, what were you doing differently and what was the, the central goal of the, of the effort? Yeah. yeah, I think what we did differently is, you know, we came out and day one, we said, we are not politicians. But imagine a mayoral candidate going down to City Hall and saying, we're not politicians, we are engaged Montrealers who care about our community, and we are going to address the real needs of Montrealers. And we are going to speak about the issues that might seem controversial, um, but address the key needs of people that are suffering from inequality or from environmental racism or uh, from the housing crisis or even identity, linguistic and cultural issues, we are going to address all of these things. And I think that's what um, resonated with many people. Uh, For those that don't know, a few months before the election, I start this political party and we get 30,000 people uh, to vote for me at, at the level of mayorship. So this is a clear indication that we were striking a chord uh, with people and that chord was one of honesty and transparency. Uh, For example, I went to two debates, one um, English, one in French, without a pen or a note. Mm -hmm. It was, I was going to speak about the issues uh, from my experience and from my heart. And I think it resonated with people. And I think that's what's different between what I brought and what your typical politician uh, brings which was a level of integrity, honesty, and authenticity that, that we don't often see. It, it, I mean, it is remarkable. I'll just sort of give people the, the numbers. I mean, um, as, as, I mean, effectively an upstart and an, outside, an outsider, because like you said, you were approaching the election differently and uh, the, the parties knew, uh, you know, you ended up with, with 
just over 7% of the, of the vote uh, and, and finished third in a crowded field. I mean, there were quite a few people who ran uh, and, and finished third, uh, which is which is notable. I mean, it, it, it really is. And I do think it speaks to the fact that people are, do want something different and they are deeply frustrated uh, with, with entrenched politicians. I mean, because what you had was, you know, you and then Denis Coderre making a comeback and Valet Plante uh, as the incumbent, right? So, I mean, there was a very clear sort of stark establishment versus uh, outsider narrative there, right? I mean, did you feel when you were talking to people during the race that people were saying to you, you know, we want something different, we're tired of the status quo. Did you get that sense? Absolutely. Um, we got the sense of anything but them two. Yeah, uh, that <laughs> yeah was, sure. <laughs> that, 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 that was the common narrative, but the one of the biggest, I would say, learning curves I, I you know, experienced is the state of our democracy is largely dependent on the, the, the narrative that the media is going to give. Mm-hmm. So if the media decides that this is going to be a rematch, that is what is, that's what people are going to resonate with. So the 30,000 people that voted for me are people that had to navigate through a democratic space in which the media was calling this a rematch whereby Radio uh, Canada, like these crown corporations, despite the fact I had uh, 10% voter intention in, in Leger polls, uh, were not inviting me to debates. I had to claw to get into mm. the, the major English and major French debates, but many debates I was not included in. And I want to remind people, it's not this is not just a little fringe thing. Still 30,000 people mm-hmm. voted for us, and we had 7%, uh, excuse me, 10% at, at the Leger poll uh, leading up to these debates. So, uh, you know, for, for me, democracy very much so feels as though it, it's in a place where if you're established and you have a certain markability, you're going to get favor. But if you are an upstart in, uh, what should be a healthy democracy like Montreal, for me, has significant challenges. And post-election, I never really pointed it out because I didn't want to, I want to give uh, the mayor her respect and her victory and and her applause. So we never came out post-election and said, hey, the state of our democracy is concerning. But I feel as though any international or even local uh, body that analyzed the election would see significant issues with uh, the state of Montreal's democracy. I I don't doubt it. I mean, I mean, 10% is, is, as you mentioned, significant. I mean, it was more than enough in the federal debates to, to clear that hurdle that was set by the, the consortium, right? I mean, it, it's 10% is a lot <laughs> in a crowded field because, I mean, there were there were two you know established politicians, but there were a lot of people who were running. If you can get 10% intention in that space, that's that's significant. Um, but I do agree with you at this state of, of democracy more, more generally. Um, and, and I want to move to that actually a little now looking at provincial and national politics. I want to talk a little bit about Quebec specifically, and then we can get into national if it fits. But, you know, Quebec is certainly not the only province whose politics are marked by structural and other forms of racism, but it's certainly one of them. And, you know, people often talk about Bill 21, the Religious Symbols Bill, Bill 96, the the Language Bill, that stand out as examples. And I'm curious what, what 
you know, is what you think motivates the establishment to pursue legislation like that? Uh, who gets left behind when they do, and how do how do people push back? Yeah, that's. I think you know these are entrenched ideologies that are rooted in uh, whether it's the Quiet Revolution in Quebec and this idea that one church and state had to be separate and two uh, language rights and identity and culture had to be upheld and protected. Like many, many people are very much so aware that in Quebec, it is, you know, language and identity and culture is under threat. It's the only uh, French speaking uh, state, if you will, across North America. And it's true that globalization and the Americanization of our culture, of our way of life, is increasingly encroaching on Quebec identity. And politics is a way in which uh, we are attempting to legislate that. And what many people feel is that they're going at it the wrong way. I'm of the view that by being more inclusive, by being more open and more tolerant, you're going to protect the French language and protect French culture. But currently, it's viewed as we are going to attempt to assimilate minorities, assimilate immigrants, ask them to integrate and kind of leave their identities behind and morph into what, you know, many people feel as like, you know, francophone, homogenous cultures. And ultimately, I think there, there's a clash happening and I think there's going to be pushback. However, you know, just to say, and I think this happens throughout the whole country, is that cities have different identities than that of the rural regions. So here in Montreal, uh, we view Bill 21 and Bill 96 as highly problematic. So Law 21 states that you can't wear religious symbols in a position of authority, but the regions are in favor of it. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge clash there. And this, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right. This mirrors a broader problem, a broader tension, I should say, across the country, which is, you know, the rural-urban divide and the fact that the country is very quickly uh, urbanizing. I mean, the, the urbanization rates are, are quite high, and yet that tension persists, right? I mean, it's still, it's still there. I mean, what, how, how do you, how do you manage that then? Is it, is it always going to be a conflict between the region, the rural region, and, and the urban regions? Yeah. Is, is there a way out of that? Yeah, concretely, the way that I manage it um, is, I'll start a new political party, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I will openly say that Montreal should be the author of its destiny. Montreal should get more autonomy, more independence. And what I, I call state-like status, and you can call it, you know, there's different ways of calling it, but I, I think that Victoria, Vancouver, uh, Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, Regina, Toronto, Montreal, all these municipalities that were not represented in the Canadian constitution with any form of power, we're all just creatures of provinces, should be recognized under the Canadian Constitution. And as such, the uh, urban spaces will be able to identify or rather to be authors of their identity. So Montreal is a multicultural, multilingual, inter international, excuse me, cosmopolitan city, and our legislation should reflect that. So I think Montreal with more autonomy uh, will do a better job in identifying and creating legislation reflective of the interests of Montrealers. Same thing in, in Calgary. Um, I believe it was Calgary. They, they had to almost go above uh, their provincial government for, for COVID-19 assistance and help. So 
we need to, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's identity politics, uh, which are somewhat controversial, but nonetheless, I think municipalities need better representation in order to have that. I think maybe I'm 20 years above my time. I've said that in the past, but over time, I think Canadian municipalities, especially large cities, will be represented in the Canadian constitution. I think that is the only solution because you cannot have rural um, municipalities who are disconnected demographically, culturally, politically from major urban centers uh, be the architects of laws that impact these urban centers. I think urban centers, eventually these like metropolises need to stand on their own and need to have representation and recognition in the Canadian constitution. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating because you see provinces say, we need more autonomy from Ottawa. We need to be masters of our destiny. And then cities say to the provinces, we need that too. And provinces say, no, 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 not so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Not for you. We need it from Ottawa, yeah. but you don't need it from us. You need to remain um, under our direction. And, and you see that tension. Um, certainly, I mean, you mentioned a number of cities where it's true, but you certainly see it. Uh, in, I mean, I lived in Vancouver for some time, and it was definitely present in Vancouver. And you saw it with all kinds of issues, not the least of which was, uh, you know, the overdose crisis, right? I mean, it's, yeah. there's a huge, and, and, and that's been a great example of that. Housing is another one, some great tension. Um, if you had to highlight a couple of issues, I want to think of the specific issues we talk about when we talk about cities that, uh, that drive that need for more municipal autonomy. What are the issues that come to the forefront? Yeah. What are the leading issues that you say, this is the case for constitutional autonomy for cities? Yeah. So number one, and this is really throughout major municipalities across the nation, is housing. So right now, uh, we have 24,000 people waiting for social housing here in Montreal. 24,000? Oh my God. Yeah. 24,000 people waiting for social housing. 24,000, which is incredible. This is over a five-year waiting period. Uh, between 2019 and 2020, 28,000 people left the island of Montreal. So you can imagine that uh, the gentrification and the affordability of the city, these are massive problems. And the first thing the mayor said when she was elected was, we need more money from the province of Quebec. And this is an ongoing issue from the Tremblay government, which is you know about a decade ago to over the last four years. As a city, we put in our last budget about $140 million towards social housing. And you know we, we need over a million. Mm -hmm. And the only way for us to actually be able to build social and affordable housing is fun, is financing and funding from the provincial government. Now, with a more autonomy, the current budget being six billion, it would be double. Our, our GDP here in um, Montreal is around 200 billion. Toronto is double. But all that money goes and all the economic prosperity we send it to Ottawa and send it to Quebec. And what we're saying is that we need to get more taxation powers, more recognition under the Canadian Constitution to get more of that economic uh, benefit. So I, I feel, though, that if we had more power, we had a better opportunity to finance things like housing and the what I call like the uh, condomization of the city uh, is hugely problematic and we're pushing families and everyone you know, out of the city. So that's number one. Num number two for us, and you could call it number one, and you know, not in any particular order, is the environment. We spent close to $6 billion 
on uh, the electrification of public transit here in Quebec. And that's around 2,000 um, buses. And just at the city of Montreal alone, we need that $6 billion, And that's the total amount of our current budget. So once again, it's really a financial issue. If we're going to truly have a ecological transition and we're going to be carbon neutral, we always hear you know, federal government saying, oh, we're going to meet the Paris Accord Agreement. And we all know that we have never met in the last 24 years, never met a single um, target. If we're truly going to meet our environmental targets, we need to be able to fund um, this transition, this ecological transition. If we're going to decrease our ecological footprint, we have to fund uh, this. And those two major things right now in the city of Montreal, I, I believe, are front and center. And if I were to pick number three is public security. Hmm. You know, I was the only candidate that came out and said the way that we stop crime. Sure, we can have specific task force to target the proliferation of gang violence and, and of guns. However, the long-term solution has to be investing uh, in young people, investing in low-income communities to ensure that they become productive members of society. And lo and behold, at the beginning of this, we were talking about Montreal North being the most you know, impoverished borough in all of Canada and being the epicenter of COVID-19, where guess where the epicenter of violence is? Montreal North, right? So by investing in urban planning and green spaces and sports and leisure recreation infrastructure, by investing in education, you can curtail violence. Now, this, for some reason, um, is not the ideology of the current administration. This is idea that you can get a James Bond like SWAT team and descend <laughs> with like parachutes and tanks and like solve uh, the, the violence. And I don't know why we keep making that same mistake. And it's, it's very surprising to me, but for me, I think those would be the, the top three uh, elements, housing, environment, and uh, public security. And it's, you know, it's fascinating because the common theme throughout the three of those is infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these, all, all three of those entail building very particular types of infrastructure that we are so bad at building in this country. I mean, federally, provincially, municipally, we just have such a wretched record. Uh, and I think part of it is the nature of the federation. Uh, it's just, you know, which I think further supports your point that cities need autonomy. I mean, I, I think especially on climate change, where cities are going to have to, you know, if we're heading for a 2.4 degree world, which we are, uh, the infrastructure that that's going to require to manage, I mean, we're, we're seeing in British Columbia right now what happens with extreme oh, wow, weather, yeah. right, uh, yeah. is, is extraordinary. I mean, I think it's, but I'm curious, I want to I want to shift slightly because I'm curious uh, what that looks like outside the political process. So we've, we've been talking about mm -hmm. the formal or official institutions and uh, the, uh, you know, representative and party politics. I'm curious if you think what, what needs to be done outside of it, informally. I mean, if, if Avenue 1 is representative politics and that's the one you're on right now, uh, what's Avenue Two? What, what you know? How do we do yeah. this collectively? For sure, and, and I think that um, politics would be Avenue Two, and Avenue One would be grassroots mobilization, public consultations, direct democracy, and continuous citizen engagement. So, for example, here in Montreal, we we did not have uh, a city hall that represented um, Montrealers. Montrealers being, you know, a third are visible minorities. Um, we had issues of employment discrimination, issues of urban planning, of environment, public security, all the issues we mentioned. And the way I solved that, uh, why I tried to solve that four years ago, was to start a nonprofit 
we collected uh, 22,000 signatures to trigger a participatory democracy clause in the Montreal Charter that forces it to have a consultation on these issues. Now, there is 15,000 people that participated. Uh, it was a huge success. And then 38 recommendations, very specific recommendations, came from that to address all the issues that we're talking about. And I think, and now there's a commissioner and a, and a borough at the city level that's responsible to implement those recommendations. So there is a direct correlation between grassroots movement, um, citizen mobilization, public consultations, recommendations, and then clear concrete action. And that could go through, um, that I think that process is one of the most clear and concrete and precise ways to enact change. But the challenge is that you, you need the, the 2.0. You, you eventually need to have the legislation and the funding mm -hmm. come with it. And I think uh, Greta Thunberg is the greatest example. Like we, we can march uh, on Fridays every, you know, every Friday and we could criticize, you know, every, anytime there's like a summit, but fundamentally you're going to need people in government that say we're no longer going to fund uh, or subsidize, um, you know, these fossil fuel companies. Mm -hmm. Eventually you're going to need that, that democratic, um, action but step one is really the the grassroots mobilization and that's where it starts and if you think of the suffrage movement from women being allowed to vote from you know the civil rights movement uh it always starts at the grassroots level and i think that people need to pay attention and people need to think beyond voting because voting is one thing but then how are you going to be engaged on a regular basis and i think mm -hmm. that's the biggest challenge yeah, I think you're right. The you know there there's something about this country, and that you know um, scholar Genevieve Fuji Johnson wrote about this in a book called Democratic Illusions, and she said you know we do these participatory democratic exercises, and they're great, and there's lots of buy-in, but there's something that happens between when they finish up and when we get to a solution where it doesn't cash out in a lot of cases, right? There's just, mm -hmm. it gets left behind at some point, and 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 getting it to that last mile is the is the challenge, and I, I liked your point about uh, Greta Thunberg because you know they bring her to these conferences and meetings where she admonishes politicians for failing to get things done. And then they just sort of turn around and fail to get things done. And everybody sort of shrugs yeah. and says, "Of course, right?" And like this is just what happens. And the system gets really good at bringing in their critics, but effectively neutralizing them by having them in the room and then just ignoring them. And it's it's extraordinary to me. And 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 I wonder if. You, you know, the sustained action and pressure seems to be one way. And I wonder when you watched the climate marches, I want to come back to this, um, a couple of years ago and saw the energy, especially in, in Quebec, I mean, who, where there's a history of this social movements, um, you know, how do you harness that? I mean, how do you take these sometimes ephemeral moments and build them into both formal and informal movements that get things done. I mean, is that what you're doing with with your party? I mean, is it a goal to try to, to harness that energy? What's the like? How does that cash out? Yeah, yeah and, and that's that's a great question. Like when I go to these marches, and believe it or not, even the Black Lives Matter marches, I'm on the side with a cup of coffee, thinking, "What are we doing?" Mm -hmm. Because I, I I don't see it cashing out, and I think that I've I've seen that. I've just seen that story all too often. Um, you know, it's so the way I, you know, my concern has always been my concern is that the civil rights movement never transitioned into a democratic movement. 
and and you you still like you still saw the war on drugs in the U.S. and even in Canada, despite the fact that there are people calling for equal rights. So, and I see the same thing with the climate march is that you're seeing all this movement, but I I don't feel it cashing out, and that's why with without batting an eye, I'll say I'm going to start a political party. I know I'm probably not going. I know I'm not going to win. Not even probably. I'm no. I'm not, I'm not going to win. But I am going to build a team and push the government to the point where they're going to have to start considering our policies for real. Um, and if they don't, then they're probably going to lose. And people have said that the reason why Denis Kader lost the election was because of Movement Montreal and my presence. Um, we took 30,000 votes away from him, particularly Allophones and Anglophones. And when he came closer to Bill 96, the French vote left him, and that's basically fundamentally why he lost. And Pajamontreal, mm-hmm. Montreal, you speak to them, they'll, they'll say, yeah, Balarama's party significantly helped us. And Leger, uh, when they're doing all the polling, was like, Balarama's a significant factor. So if we are going to start causing um, political defeats in a very significant way, then people will start listening to you. And I don't know what my political future is going to be. But you have um, provincial government, you know, coming up here in Quebec. There's going to be elections in October, and if I decide to run, this has a significant impact on the Quebec Liberal Party. Um, and and if I begin to say, hey, these are things that I care about, and if you do not do this, then we're going to start running a political party. That is where it gets interesting. So Greta is certainly not a politician, but if you're not in the arena, then I think it's just window dressing. Uh, you know, the big oil companies are in the Hamptons while you're protesting. It doesn't really do yeah. anything. Eventually, you're going to have to go into the arena and you're going to have to possibly, you know, ha- it takes economic sacrifice. It takes political sacrifice, social sacrifice. Uh, the the election towards me was extremely, uh, if you will, politically violent. I was getting lambasted left, right and center. Um but that's, I feel, where the, the battle lies is in the political arena. And that's why it's not catching out, because there's not that transition to the political arena, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I want in a, in a minute, because we're starting to approach time, I want to close up by talking about your political future a bit. But first, I want to dig into this broader point. Uh, one of the critiques that was raised against the Occupy movement in the United States is that it didn't do what the Tea Party movement did. And the Tea Party movement went into electoral politics and became a, an electoral movement within the Republican Party and became profoundly powerful. Um, it, direct, it, it certainly helped elect Trump. It led to you know the speakerships and and uh, high-ranking members within the caucus of the Republican Party. It shaped American politics and legislation, policy, and law. Occupy didn't do that. They didn't do the same thing on the Democrat side. There's a little bit of that now with the squad and some of the left Democrats, but Occupy never did that. Um, so is, is, that, is that the you know is that the lesson that you're applying here? Is that okay? Well, you, you can only go so far, and now we're going to we're going to get into the as you say the arena. But if, if that's going to be the movement, what what do you do? when it comes to forming a party versus joining an existing party and trying to mobilize these, these existing institutions? I mean, is there a way to, to seize existing parties and drag them, or do you have to create new ones? Yeah, and, and that's tough. And when you create new ones, you know, it, it's debatable what the result is, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, it's kind of debatable to say, okay, I advanced certain issues in the election. Now, how is that going to translate to policy? 
you know, technically during, if you take it just politically, we lost, right? Even though we see it as a victory, um, politically speaking, you know, the current administration doesn't have to listen to us for the next four years. Right. Uh, fundamentally, you know, when you talk about systemic uh, racism or systemic discrimination and, and things of systems is that it reproduces over time and there's a power imbalance, whether it's through race or now through politics. So say the Liberal Party of Canada, over time, this institution, this powerful institution has been there. And I think that at, at one point, there needs to be the, the power imbalance and those in power have to start listening with a compassionate ear and say, okay, I will concede. Because the power imbalance is so, so grand that even if uh, there was a Greta Thunberg political party in Canada that was in, like an environmentalist and they took over the Greens, for example, they would still be outnumbered in parliament um, in, in, in the House. They, they, they still would have very little power. So at one point, you know, when you think of like the Occupy movement, you know, Obama, I think, had the moral obligation to say, I'm not going to bail out. Uh, Wall Street, I'm going to bail out Main Street. Mm -hmm. and, and he didn't do it. And a lot of people uh, were disenchanted with the way that Obama dealt with that. Um, and we, we could say the same thing for, you know, the, the prime minister currently. I think that there is advancement towards more environmentally conscious policies. You know, he'll meet with Greta and then, you know, we'll, we'll still keep on going on the pipeline. But the pipeline is tough, right? You can't just say, okay, I'm going to build this infrastructure and then stop, uh, you know, stop pumping oil through it. It's extremely challenging. But I think that eventually the leadership cannot sell out. And I think we're getting at a point where environmentally, we see in BC that there is going to be attention that are going to be drawn to our leaders and they will listen because I think we're getting towards that 1.5 degrees Celsius. We've seen, you know, highways and towns being flooded. I think eventually through obligation of basically death and survival of, of the human species, we will gain that ear, but it's and see change at the um, highest levels, but it's very slow coming. I, I agree, and it's of note. I mean, I want to come back around to the structural racism point. Um, I mean, we've, we've touched on a lot of things in, uh, in this episode, which I which I'm grateful for, but I want to bring it back to this core issue as we close out. The the effects of all the things you're talking about are disproportionately borne by some, right, over others. And, you know, a lot of people miss this point when they think about climate change, for instance, but climate change is, is racialized, right? It's not, it's not going to be felt by everybody the same and in the same ways. Um, you know, is this, a, is this a message you've been, I mean, you've certainly been discussing structural discrimination and racism. Do you tie it to these particular policies? I mean, have you been thinking about the ways in which these things are bearing on certain communities? And, and, when, and if you are, uh, how do people receive that message? Yeah, and, you know, so at one point, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s in the U.S., environmental racism started to come up because people realized that, oh, these racialized communities live next to these industrial sites. Right. And cancer rates are higher. And, you know, Ingrid Waldron, who's a professor in, in the Atlantic region, wrote a book called There's Something in the Water. And there was a push. And I think even... I'm not sure if it passed, you know, first or second reading, but there's an environmental racism uh, bill at, at, in, at the parliament right now. So I think that these ideas are no longer controversial. There's scientific data related to these, these bills. And even here, right here in Montreal, 
we see uh, less green spaces and low income areas and higher cancer rates and a 10 year difference in life expectancy between uh, these low income areas, which are high population of immigrants versus you know, the average. So environmental racism, social justice, uh, racial profiling, employment discrimination, it's all reflected in data. So mm-hmm. it's very, you know, no, no one's contesting it. Now, the issue and one of the issues with our with our democracy, if you will, is that it's um, first past the poll and it's majority wins. So if the majority of people who are voting are wealthier, more educated um, homeowners, well, the minority voices and the people adversely impacted by the environment, well, they're not going to be reflected in government nor in policy. Mm-hmm. So. That's where, yes, we we do speak about these issues, but are these parties going to be uh, reflected in government? Probably not. Look at Bernie Sanders. If if these issues were, um, if these issues were valued by the majority of the population, I think that you'd have Bernie Sanders as president of the United States. But unfortunately, the people who do vote um, and the majority of people who do vote are wealthier, more educated. Ultimately, our politics aren't reflected there. So, yes, we speak about it, but are these things that are going to get you elected? Uh, currently, the answer is no, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> I, want to, I want to close out. That's a perfect transition to my last question. I mean, speaking of getting elected, <laughs> what's, yeah. uh, what you, what's next for you? What are you thinking? Uh, what's the future of you and, and your party? Yeah, and, and that's so Movement Montreal, we are here to stay as a party. Um, we we have a lot of motivated people on the ground up until this day who are telling us keep going and candidates actually I had brunch with my candidates a few days ago. Uh, everyone's very, very excited. And as for my political future, I think that for me, I'm not sure what I'll do, but I'll know that I'm going to keep my autonomy and independence and keep representing, um, people who are, I would say most forgotten. And I think over time, People will, will fight to get me elected, but that's going to take time. But I am not, the chances of me joining an establishment currently is, is highly unlikely. Um, from Bill 96 to other issues here in Quebec, I think there's, there are people who are counting on voices that are willing to sacrifice their you know, political uh, capital, if you will, to represent them. And so for now, and I think for the long term and for my life mission, I'm going to be representing um, people who are often underrepresented and voiceless in government. Well, that that's a perfect note on which to end. Uh, that brings us to time. So first of all, my thanks to you for joining me today. This was fantastic. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, and I'm uh, looking forward to uh, continuing uh, the conversation down the line. Uh, as am I, and uh, and of course, my thanks always to the to the team who makes this possible, uh, especially Carolyn Smith and Aaron Reynolds, who, as I always say, make the show makes the show not just possible but better than it would be without them. And of course, to all of you who are listening, wherever you may be, we'll see you again here in a few weeks. <laughs>